You're listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast, where you'll hear the stories and interviews of everyday millionaires. We'll unveil their decisions, their strategies, and their current portfolio allocation. Now to your hosts, Clark Sheffield and Jace Mattinson. Welcome to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast. This is episode number 57. So far to date, we've heard stories from doctors, from teachers, from a custodian, from pharmacists, from many others. And it's been a, it's been a great journey and, and fun to hear from each of them and fun to hear how each of their stories and investment strategies are different. If you'd like to be on a show, if you're a millionaire and you'd like to be on the show as a millionaire interviewer, please uh, feel free to reach out. We'd love to have you on. We'd love to share your story and, and share how you got to where you are. Our email is millionairesunveiled at gmail.com. If you enjoy the show, leave us a review on iTunes and subscribe to the show. It helps us get the podcast out, get new listeners, and also reach new millionaire interviewees. Furthermore, we have some investing opportunities, and those are located in both the Northeast and the Southwest regions. And these are for accredited investors, primarily multifamily investments. And we're partnering with a few other guys who have a long track record of success and have had consistently high returns. So if you're interested in those, feel free to reach out via email or at our at our website, millionairesunveiled.com. Last week's interview was Jake. He had a net worth of $3.3 million and four kids. So if you haven't heard that interview, go back and check it out. It was a great story. We have some exciting interviews coming up, including guest interviews with some bigger names as Jamie Masters, Chris Hogan, and Robert Kiyosaki. And we also have some inspiring millionaire interviews coming up, including one with a man who was previously homeless and has since rebounded to a net worth of many millions. Yeah, that's going to be a great interview coming up. Next week's episode will feature Amber. She and her husband are both in the HR profession. And they have two children who are 11 years old. Their net worth is $1.2 million. And we talked to Amber about all sorts of investing strategies and how they paid their home off early and kind of how they are going to plan continuing to build wealth. Today on the show, we've got Qbert. And Qbert's net worth is $1.4 million. He's got 500000 in a 401k, and that's a traditional 401k. About 100% of that is invested in a Vanguard large cap index fund. He's got 250 k in home equity and about 600 k in some other real estate, uh, the rentals and, and Airbnb, and we get into that the discussion with him about how he's managed those rentals and and his Airbnb stories. He kind of goes about uh, investing with this three-pillar approach with his 401k, his retirement accounts, so to speak, his home equity and the value of that, and then real estate and cash flow from that. So without further ado, let's get right into the episode with Qbert. All right. So, hey, thanks for having me. Uh, This is Qbert from AbandonedCubicle.com. And uh, basically, I write about uh, early retirement. Uh, I, I, I call the blog a playbook for early retirement. So a lot of the focus is on the money side, right? But I also like to weave in lifestyle themes because there's more to you know life than just you know whether you work in a cubicle or not. It's what are you doing with your life while you're in that situation. Um, so you know thematically. Yes, we talk about finances. Uh, we talk about real estate. Uh, you know, and, and I think the overall, the overarching vision for abandoned cubicle is 
how do you make your day-to-day life that much better, more meaningful, whether or not you're working, whether or not you're retired? You know, that's my goal. That's what I'm, I'm striving for. I don't claim to be an expert, but I'm on a journey. Uh, so I love learning from others, other bloggers in the space, other experts in the space, certainly guys like you, Clark and Jace, that host these uh, amazing podcasts. So um, thanks for having me. What is, uh, what's your net worth today? I'm at 1.4. And how, and how is that 1.4 broken up? Yeah, so uh, I got about uh, 500K uh, in a 401K. And then there's about 250. Uh, that's our represents sort of the post-mortgage value in our primary residence. And the rest, which is about 600K or so, represents our real estate investments also after mortgage obligations. So those are really the big sort of, uh, I guess, main three pillars of, of our network today. Okay. And how, how is the uh, investments in the market invested? <laughs> it's it's pretty non-sexy. Um, I'll say that. It's like 100% all in uh, Vanguard large cap uh, fund that we have through my employer. So it is basically an index fund, tracks the S&P 500, and it is the lowest of the low for administrative fees, something like 0.02% or something ridiculous like that. Gotcha. And then in the in the 401k, do you have other Roth IRAs? Do you have traditional or, or Roth? Or what's the breakup between those two? Uh, no, it's just it's just a basic uh, traditional 401k. Um, no, no Roth. I, I do have a very very nominal uh, amount in an IRA um, that I'm setting aside basically for the kids uh, for for a college fund, if you will. Uh, so we're we're looking to you know set aside enough so that at least two, maybe three years, their college can be paid for. And how come you guys have decided not to go the the Roth option? Uh, you know, I, I honestly, I don't even know if I qualify anymore. I, I, I would need to look into it, but I, I, I just think for simplicity, I've just kept it in the pre-tax 401k. And, and I, I can get into this in a little bit too, you guys, because I, you know, I know one of the questions you, you like guests to, to contemplate is, you know, what, what's a good book? What is something that you've learned that has shaped your, your worldview or your investment view? And for, for a few years, I, I kind of avoided the 401k altogether, uh, which I regret in some instances, but I've recovered from that. Uh, but I keep it real simple, and I invest at least up to the amount that I get the employer match. All the rest is set aside for real estate investment. And at this point, in our journey, um, paying off the rest of our uh, mortgage on our primary home. And you said most of it was in just a large cap index fund within that 401k, correct? That's it. It's 100% there, yeah. 100% there, gotcha. And and it's always been that way, or is that something you've changed or moved around recently or just always been that way? Yeah, good question, right? So uh, within the last three or four years, I think it was about four years ago that I, I made that shift to just doing the Vanguard stuff in my portfolio. And it was like, they have a small cap, they have a mid cap, they have a large cap. And I, I would just kind of split it up between the three. And then within the last two years, I've just said, hey, 100%, just all large cap. Prior to that, for most of my career, I I did sort of the random mix just based on what looked good, ignorant about what each of those funds were. I did a little bit of digging. I knew that I didn't want to be, you know, 
uh, throwing all my money into bonds. I knew I didn't want to throw all my money into international stocks. I, I would I would just sort of balance it between like the large cap, mid cap, small cap, throw a little bit in international, maybe five, ten percent. But I didn't really pay attention to it too much. And I think that's one of the shortcomings that a lot of us have is it's just so much to take in. Um, if you're not willing to take the time to learn it, you're probably costing yourself some money, you know? So that, that's just a little bit of, you know, kind of my journey from just not even knowing, just throwing money at it, hoping for the best to today where I feel like I've got a pretty, pretty good grip on it. And I'm, I'm pretty satisfied with where we're at. Yeah. Yeah. I think of those that we've talked to, obviously all of them, you know, haven't been financially successful, but that's one thing they have in common is that each of them kind of own their finances in a way. You know, if they're not handling it themselves, they're at least informed on on where it is and, and what they're doing with it. So let's talk about those other two buckets. You said you have six hundred thousand in real estate. Yes. So maybe yeah. dive into how that's broken out and yeah, what totally. your mindset is there. Yep. And this this all started um back in twenty thirteen. Interestingly, about a year and a half before I even contemplated early retirement as an option. So sometimes these things sort of just fall like dominoes. First thing was, I think it was 2011 or 2012, I wrote a book called Killing Sacred Cows, you know, destroying the myths about personal finance, something like that. Or Garrett Gunderson's the author. And my wife brought it home free. Uh, she went to a seminar. And uh, he was a speaker there, a keynote. She's like, here, I, I don't really have any interest in this. He's an interesting speaker, but you might find it more interesting than me. And she went there just as a business owner. She owns a, a chiropractic uh, business or practice. And uh, so I'm like, yeah, I'll take a look. And the, 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 you know, the sacred cow is the 401k. He goes after it hard. Uh you know, and so it's just it's you shouldn't be throwing your money in there. You should be throwing it into to real estate. So I'm like, okay, I'm listening. And read that book. I also had a friend at work who owned a handful of duplexes, uh, and he kept egging me on to get into real estate because uh, it had been, you know, working out pretty well for him. I mean, think about the timing. This was like four years after the the crash, and the housing market was still a long ways from fully recovered. So he was picking up, you know, foreclosures, short sales, you name it, and getting getting tenants in there. No problem filling, you know, vacancies. So 2013 rolls around, we get our first house, and then I'm like, you know, gosh, we better strike while the, you know, while the iron's hot or whatever. So picked up rental number 2 6 months later. So 2013 we got two two properties, and then within a year or two after that, I think it was actually the following summer, we picked up number three. And then the following after that, we picked up number four. So it was in pretty quick succession um, that we picked up the four in there. Each, mm, I think purchase price was just under 150K. Uh, today, on average, they're worth about 200 each. And then there's the Airbnb experiment, which is a condo. You know, the home value on that one is a little bit better now, but that's mainly because of the improvements we put into it. You know, we purchased that at like, I think 120K and it's probably worth 145, 150K today. So, you know, the properties are, are single family houses, you know, four single family houses, one condo. 
cash flow pretty darn good. I'm very happy with how they're performing. Haven't had a single month of vacancy um, in the, the five years we've been operating now. Uh, and on average, um, we cash flow about 600 bucks uh, after expenses uh, for each of those properties per month. So pretty, pretty happy with that. Yeah, so let's let's dive into those a little bit. So yep. four rentals, um, you've had them for about five years. Each of them, on average, cash flow about six hundred a year, or excuse me, six hundred a month. Yep. So about twenty four hundred a month, right? Uh, yes. Now, if you, yeah, yeah, that that that's right. If you if you include the condo, the Airbnb, it'd, it'd be about three grand uh, a month in total, right? So five times six. Um, but but the the Airbnb is a little bit of a wild card, um, you know, because the summer season is the most popular. That's where we generate the most income. It gets a little bit quieter over the winter. Sure. Uh, yeah. And so maybe dive in individually into each of those houses. How much were they purchased for? Did yeah. you did you purchase them in house or in cash? Excuse me. Or is there a mortgage? And yeah, sure. And 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 uh, just broadly to start with, uh, they're they're all mortgaged. Um, so I wasn't able to get in there with cash and in each and every case I did tap into our own HELOC. So we have a home equity line of credit on our primary residence, which is also, it also serves as our emergency fund. We don't like to keep a lot of cash, uh, just sitting around doing nothing. So we have a HELOC and that's what it's used for. It's basically our lever for new properties. So the very first one, uh, in early 2013 was a short sale. Uh, it took a little bit longer to unfold and to get uh, uh, purchase agreement, close on it, and everything like that. Uh, but we bought it for one twenty-five. Today, uh, that property is worth about two fifteen. Um, so it's appreciated quite a bit uh, since we purchased it. You know, two bedroom, one bathroom. It currently is one of the best performing uh, in terms of cash flow. It like. 700 a month that that's definitely the first one has has definitely proven to be the most lucrative one and what do you rent that one for currently uh 14 did let's see 14 45 a month on that one and has it always been at that rental rate or have you kind of increased it since you bought it it's gone up i'm trying to think now i think it was about 1200 when i first started renting it out. So it has gone up about 250. I mean, I could probably get 1500 a month for it easy. I've just, I've had a tenant in there for over two years and I'm very reluctant to raise uh, rents on existing tenants. But even so, you know, on a month to month lease, I have that flexibility to do it. And um, hers even went up uh, here in the last month or so. And, and basically what I do is I say, hey, you know, if you want to sign a long-term lease with me a year or more, a year or two, I will lock in your current rate. But a lot of tenants are willing to pay more to have the flexibility uh, if their life situation changes. Totally. Um, that's so what What does that mean? They're month to month? Or I mean, what kind of lease are they signing if they want that flexibility? Yeah, the month to month lease um, is always at the end of a one or two year lease. And uh, all it is is, you know, hey, you you do have the option to continue to roll over your lease month to month, um, but I also reserve the right to increase the rent 
Now it's rare that I will, we'll make a handshake agreement that says, you know, you're probably going to be here for another six months, you know, but just know that next fall or in the spring, you know, when people are looking for a place to live, I may need to take that opportunity to raise the rent, not because I want to kick you out, but because as property values have gone up where I invest, the city has jacked up property taxes commensurately. So, you know, that cuts into the amount of money I budgeted for maintenance. Um, it cuts into the profits and the, the viability of the property. So just trying to keep up with property taxes is mainly the thrust behind the rent increase. But I'll generally gotcha. work with my tenants to say, hey, you know what? If you want to sign on for another year, we can lock you in at your current rate without you having a risk of uh, your rent going up. And what's really worked well for me is, you know, when I offer a two-year uh, because I'll offer a two-year lease, um, twenty bucks cheaper a month. Let's say twenty, twenty-five bucks cheaper. It's a good incentive, and I, I think each of the last tenants I've, I've signed has gone for the two-year lease. Sure. Yeah. So that one you bought for one twenty-five, you rent it for for fourteen forty-five. Uh, maybe before we get into the mortgage details, maybe just quickly go through those other three. Yeah. And, and kind of share that same thing: the purchase price and and how much it currently rents for. You bet. So the the one we bought later that summer in 13, 2013, we we paid like one fifty, I think just maybe one forty nine fifty or you know like one fifty k. Let's just say uh, that one is also valued today at like two hundred fifteen k. You know, in terms of of neighborhood value and home value, it has been like the strongest, and and the property taxes have been reflective of that. So it's probably the one that performs the least well, cash flowing right around 500, a little under 500, mainly because of the property taxes. I just get chewed up alive on the property taxes. They're like 2300 a year uh, for this little two-bedroom, one-bathroom house. And that one rents for what price? That one rents currently at 14 to do, 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 do I want to say fourteen fifty or fourteen seventy five? They're, they're all roughly in the same ballpark. Oh, I only okay. have I only have one that's like thirteen forty five or something like that. But but yeah, that that second one is is proven to be pretty good, pretty solid. The third one paid like one one forty two, and uh, it's currently worth two hundred. And we rent that one out at fourteen seventy five, which is good. I mean, and, and that one, again, has proven to be a, a pretty strong house. It took a lot to get it ready. It was kind of a mess. And even today, it's, it's funny. It took three years for the city inspector to finally show up and check it out. And, and just today, this morning, we were over there. And, <laughs> and it, he's like, oh, you know, you got to get your entryway redone. So the pathway from the sidewalk to the front is all chewed up. And so I'm looking at getting some expensive concrete work done on that. I'm like, oh, great. I was, I was already thinking, man, I got to do a roof on the second one. So, you know, there's, there's definitely some, a little bit of pain from time to time with these, because you do have to invest in them. You have to care for them just like any other house. And sometimes those big things will come up. So today was the, the pathway to the front. It was sort of the, uh, out of the blue on that third rental. And then the fourth one is is a fun little house. It's a one bedroom, one bathroom. I paid one fifty for it, and this was the last one I got here in our area. But 
got in when the interest rates were still quite low, and I got it in, in at 4.25%, uh, which for a, a rental investment property is pretty good. And able to rent out a one-bedroom currently at like 1355 a month. And so that one cash flows about 525 or so uh, a month, which is pretty good. You know, all in all, the portfolio has been pretty solid. Uh, the neighborhood's popular. You get a lot of young couples that want to be in the city, you know, so there's always always really good demand. I never have to put a sign out front. I just list it on Craigslist and the place will be rented out within literally a week. I'll oh. get flooded. Yeah. That's great. And are those all on 30 years? Yes. Yes, sir. So just in summary here, this is interesting, I think, I think for all of us, for our listeners too. So if you purchased them for, for a range of about 125 to 150,000, right? And now they rent anywhere from your lowest one, correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, 1355 to 1475 a month, which yep. in the each cash flow about five to 600 a month. And, and that puts you at about 2000 to 2400 a month, give or take. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then on top of that, the low end has appreciated about seventy seventy five thousand in value, and the high end is seems like on your first one that you bought for one twenty five, and you said it's worth two fifteen, so about ninety thousand in appreciation there. Yep, that's right. That's right. So it's it's been pretty good. That's awesome. So have you ever thought about either selling and scaling up, or or continuing to buy more? Maybe what's your real estate strategy going forward? It's a strategy that 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 needs more love and care. <laughs> <laughs> honestly, because I, I I think what I've been doing is is sort of I've been a little adventurous and and I I have been taking risks. You know, it, they're informed risks, right? So when the inventory was like crap in our area uh, a little over a year ago, I was visiting my folks and I'm like, wow, you guys, I like the condos you guys live in here. And I looked on the back their local newspaper where the you know i sometimes list all those houses and stuff and i'm like hey look there's kind of in your units uh for sale here since we're here on vacation why don't we you know just call up a realtor and check it out some you know someday while we're here and you know we did and then one thing led to another and before we knew it we had a, a condo on our hands and you know the idea behind that was hey let's turn it into an airbnb and Try that as a real estate strategy. It's treated differently, of course. You know, from a tax perspective, I learned quickly. It's you know, you're in the hospitality business. You're not, you know, in the uh, long-term rental bracket or racket anymore, if you want to call it that. It's it's a little bit of a different game. You know, you set it up right. You put the work in up front, and you can make good money on it. Now, the return on it is just about twenty percent uh, from a cash-on-cash perspective. What's not reflected in that strategy is all the work that you put in as a host, right? So you have to make sure you get a good cleaner. Um, you pay the cleaner as they clean. Um, you keep the place stocked. Uh, you know who your maintenance people are in the, in the condo uh, association. So if something breaks, you know who to call. It's just a lot more hands-on. It's not quite as passive, right? So I'm checking my Airbnb, VRBO calendar, you know, at least every other day, if not every day, I got people that will stay for two, three days. I got people that will stay for a week. Um, and it's only been this month that we've had like a few days between stays to kind of catch our breath a little bit. So it's been, it's been an adventure. I've also learned how to automate and the importance of pricing and things like that. But 
that that is a strategy that I think is worth exploring. I think in terms of whether or not I would ever sell any of the long-term rentals or the Airbnb. I mean, a few things scare me with that. One is obviously commissions. You know, you lose a lot of the value. But then also the uh, depreciation recapture, right? So a tax advantage of holding rentals is, you know, you get to write off uh, depreciation and it's it's a healthy chunk. It's, you know, on a $150,000 house with the land, you know, almost three, 4,000, 5,000 bucks off your taxes as a write-off per property. The trouble is, if you turn around and sell it, the IRS will come after you for at least 25% of that as a recapture, which can be a pretty healthy chunk of change. So it's sort of a disincentive from selling. As far as I know today, the only way to get around that is to sort of pass on properties to your heirs, which you know might be uh, the best option for us. We hopefully are far away from having to think about that too much, but you know, bigger and better strategies. I, I don't know, guys. I mean, it, it really depends on where rates go. It depends on where inventory goes. But I will say this: I'm I'm pretty content with the single family house uh, game right now. I love the type of tenants you get. Um, they they tend to be a little bit more respectful with with the property, with the house. They want to know how a house works. They're a little bit more interested in taking care of it, upgrading it, etc. You know, so it's it just, it's a little less worry uh, for a landlord, you know, less that you have to sit up at night and worry about. And, and the property values are, are pretty good for a single family house. It's a little bit you know, yeah. easier to unload if you're in that situation too. Yeah. So, right. So, so just uh, I want to review here. So this is Qbert again, net worth of 1.4 with about 600. So almost half of his, his net worth in, in real estate. And I just want to ask you kind of about getting started with this because I think it's something that anybody can do, right? If, even if they're on sixty thousand or seventy thousand dollars salary, right, to buy a hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars home to save up and put down thirty thousand, that's definitely attainable, right? Over the course of a couple of years or a few years or three, four, five years of saving and then buying a property. So, how did you get started? How did you find the house? You know, were you nervous to buy your first one? Did were you did you want to make sure it was close to where you were, your primary residence was so you could manage it? Maybe talk about that first purchase. Absolutely. Um, and yes and yes, I was nervous and yes, definitely wanted something nearby. Something that that said, "Hey, I I know this area and I have a pretty good pulse for, you know, are people going to want to live here or not?" So definitely those were considerations, you know, for me, you know, and, and I think what made it easier for us to get in into this business was I think I was 40 years old at the time, given that time in a career, you know, had a chance to save up some money, had a chance to build equity in our, in our house so we could have a home equity line of credit for that down payment. That helped a lot. You know, I think I've written on my blog too, that it wasn't a little maybe a little more than 10 years ago, I don't think our net worth was like above zero. I think we're at like zero net worth. So I think that there's certainly this phase of life where in your 20s, you're, you're crawling out from the negatives. I, I know we were. In your 30s, you know, you're working to build on top of zero. And then in your 40s, if you're like people in, in our situation, I know not everybody is, we're, we're, we feel very fortunate. You know, that's when you start to compound and, and really start to see some returns. So I, I would say this, guys, I mean, I think it's probably tough if you're in your 20s. I think it's a little easier in your 30s, depending on your circumstance. But, you know, there's people out there that do it. 
And I think if if we hadn't found our first house in in 2013, you know, there's other ways of doing it. You know, we we thought about, hey, what if we sold our current house, turn that into a rental, and you know, move into a bigger house when we have kids. And that was an option. So there's there's different ways of getting into the game. I, I know people that buy a duplex and will live on one side and rent out the other. I think that's a wonderful way to do it too. Wonderful, a wonderful way to start out. Yeah. So you've got this this post on your on your blog. It's basically gets into that decade of of zero to millionaire. Was it just this last year that you became a millionaire? I think it was, or was it the end of last year? It, it was definitely within the last twelve months. At what point did you kind of throw that nugget out there that hey, I'm gonna I'm gonna really strive for this. I'm gonna start you know contributing to my four hundred one k. I'm gonna start putting some money away and it, you know to get some of these rentals and kind of get this snowball going. Yeah, that was that was just before uh, we decided to have kids. You know, man, it's crazy. You you you're like, oh my god, I'm almost gonna be forty here. We're about ready to have a family. Um, time to get this stuff figured out. You know, if we ever want to retire, we're, we're going to have to to do something. I wasn't making as much in my job back then. Neither was my wife. We didn't have a real estate business, and nothing's been given to us. You know, we're not sitting on you know an inheritance or anything like that. And everything we have, we paid for ourselves. So you know, we we just had to buckle down and say, hey, you know, is this something we want to do? It's going to be hard work, but lo and behold. You know, it has worked, and I'm grateful to friends that showed us the way, you know, how to be a landlord, what to look for in a house. You know, that was one of the main things, too. When I looked at our first house, I was very nervous to your question. So I made sure that my buddy that uh, got me into this whole thing was was there with me to look at the house. In fact, he hooked me up with his uh, rental uh, real estate agent, uh, who I've worked with ever since. So, you know, you sort of build that community of like-minded people, you get your team of experts, as I like to call it, together, and you just kind of build on your momentum. That's basically been a lot of a lot of the drive behind what's gotten us here today. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And, and a lot of ours, people talk about having a mentor or a team or you know a mastermind or, or a couple friends that kind of either push them and then also teach them on on areas that they're trying to focus on. So I, I want to jump into some rapid fire questions here before we wrap up. The most expensive pair of pants or jeans that you've ever purchased? <laughs> oh my gosh, I I gotta believe that I probably spent eighty bucks on a pair of guest jeans when I was in high school. How's that? <laughs> okay, what about uh, most expensive shoes? I got a pair of Echo uh, sneakers that are awesome. They they actually fit my narrow feet. <laughs> I paid like that was like 125 bucks. Okay, what about the uh, the most expensive car you've ever purchased? Uh, my wife's. You know, we have a Subaru Outback, and it's uh, it was new when I bought it. Um, she came home from a weekend away. I think she was uh, visiting uh, friends uh, back home. She comes home, opens the garage. Her car isn't there. Her old beat up car. And in its place is a shiny new Subaru Outback. Yeah, it was that wasn't cheap, man. I think it was uh, maybe twenty six, twenty seven k or something like that. You surprised her with that? Surprised her. Yeah, that's awesome. So she was happy. <laughs> yeah, I would be. So most expensive meal out that you've paid for personally? 
Man, one comes to mind pretty recently, actually. You know, I, I profess to be frugal, uh, but I'm also I also profess to not worrying about SHI and trying to enjoy life a little bit too. Mm-hmm. I've written about that on my blog. So for an anniversary recently, um, we went to one of the best restaurants here in Minneapolis, and I think I dropped easily almost 250 bucks for two of us. You, you don't have those milestone anniversaries all the time. Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, what was your high school and college GPA? Oh, my God, dude. Dude, that's a rough one. Um, all right, so so in high school, I think I, I was like a 3.1 maybe. I think it was enough to get into college, and then when I got to undergrad, I was a I was a screwball. I think I did uh, a little over like two seven. So you'll laugh, but I I went and got my MBA. The biggest reason for which is I I had remorse over how I performed in undergrad. So I was like, I'm gonna knock it out of the park with my MBA, and I ended up getting like a a three eight or a three nine my MBA nice. to make up for <laughs> being such a slacker. Two more here. What's your predicted retirement age and net worth at retirement? Oh, man, that's probably the toughest question of all right now. You know, I had it in mind to retire early next year, and that would be, you know, age 46. And at that point, you know, net worth could be around 1.5. You know, if the market tanks anymore, maybe it'll be 1.0. Who knows? It doesn't really bother me. I'm more focused on cash flow than anything um, at the end of the day. Tough to say. I, I am doing some soul searching right now. In fact, the post that I'm going to put out there on abandoncubicle.com on Monday is going to be all about alternatives to early retirement. So I don't think that there's scientific proof that early retirement leads to more happiness or longevity uh, or even environmental impact. I think there's a lot of people that would argue it does. But I'm studying some other parts of the world, societies that people continue to work. They somehow manage to still be happy and thriving. Yep. So we'll see. We'll see, man. I, I, I can envision, you know, working past say fifty five, but you know, maybe part time, who knows? Maybe consulting. Yeah. We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, as as much as you're comfortable, what's been your range of income through your working life? Well, see my first job, uh my first salary job out of college was twenty seven thousand five hundred a year with two weeks of vacation. And most recently I've been hovering right around the the 150 mark, and in terms of paid time off of work, I have nothing to complain about. I get almost a month per year. And and I, I couple those two things together because I think they're equally important. The years when it was only two weeks, it, it, it was kind of a soul-crushing thing. I think having more time off is what makes the cubicle life a little more tolerable. It doesn't make it perfect or ideal, but it's still, you know, I think one of the magic ingredients to sustainability for you know, employees. So what mistakes have you made along the way and slash kind of what kind of advice would you give to somebody who's kind of just starting out or wants to get on their their journey to investing and, and maybe even retiring early? You know, the, the biggest uh, lesson I think I learned was just from an EQ perspective, emotional intelligence. I think coming out of college, I didn't have a clue how to behave in the business world. And you know, I was polite enough. I knew how to interact with people. I had a good vocabulary. I I certainly wasn't didn't have erratic behavior, but I didn't know how to quote unquote play the game. I, I think just a lot of that comes with maturity. So over the years, just just learning how to adapt better to different personalities, how to be more empathetic, be a better team player, all those things that that really feed into improving your salary, improving your rate of pay, 
you know, if you can command a room, if you can demonstrate confidence and competence, you can be a pretty good employee. And that is what will bring rewards. It's what will, you know, make people respect you, make the work life a little more tolerable, you know, gets you in positions of greater responsibility, things like that. So if I would have learned all that good stuff a little bit younger, at a younger age, maybe I would be in a higher position right now, or even be in a position to maybe even just hang up the corporate thing and go full bore into real estate and maybe have more properties to work with. That's probably the one key bit of advice I, I think I would offer up to someone. Where, Kieber, where can uh, people get in touch with you or get a hold of you? Yeah, so uh, of course the blog is, is a great sort of hub, uh, and that's uh, www.abandonedcubicle.com. Uh, I've also got a Twitter presence. And I get a little bit more controversial out there because it's mostly the community and you know not as much about the readers. So I tend to uh, be more of a troll and provocateur. But I'm also on Facebook. Keyword AC is the page. And uh, yeah, on, on email, I'm keywordac at gmail.com. So you know, certainly feel free to reach out. I'm always happy to engage uh, readers and followers. That's Qbert with a net worth of $1.4 million. Thanks for coming on the show today. Hey, my pleasure, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Millionaire's Unveiled podcast with Clark Sheffield and Chase Mantinson. For more stories, investment opportunities, and information, check out our website at millionairesunveiled.com. See you next time when you'll hear from another everyday millionaire.